All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We pray for your mercy now and the illumination of your spirit to understand the significance of the things before us. Lord, make us better students of your word, that we would grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We want to experience more of his grace and uh, be able to explain his grace to others. And so make us better students of your word. We pray you would use this lecture to that effect. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we were looking at the literal principle again. And uh, with a literal principle, we want to use a normal literary approach. To, to say we use the literal principle doesn't mean that everything is interpreted literally, okay? No. But we take a literary approach. And so we default to the literal reading of the text because if you didn't do that, uh, language would, would be chaos. But we must be aware of exceptions to the literal reading that would be figurative language and then avoid interpretive extremes. And you'll remember some of those extremes, hyperliteralism, allegorism, people have a... Uh, a tendency to go to one extreme or the other. But then we were looking at the fact that there is sometimes a text you'll come across in the Bible, and it's just not plain. It's just unclear. And so when we talk about reading the Bible for what it plainly says, what do we do when we come to texts that are unclear? Well, the Bible itself acknowledges that there are texts that are less clear than others. We said as a general principle, Scripture is clear enough. That is to say, it is essentially clear or scripture is clear in essential matters, but not all equally clear. Not everything in scripture is equally clear. And the more you study scripture, you'll experience that. But we we came across this question. I didn't have a chance to open it. Why do so many interpretations exist in the Bible if the Bible is essentially plain? And last week, that's what I concluded with. I gave you, I think, eight different principles by which we are describing the fact Scripture is clear. But if Scripture is essentially clear, why are there so many different interpretations of it? Well, how we answer this question has to do with what sort of different interpretations we're talking about. Not every difference of interpretation is really of equal weight. I hope we're agreed on that. And I kind of have a... I believe I have a chart here for this. Okay? And I want you to consider differences of interpreting scripture in terms of three different categories. First are essential interpretive differences, all right? And this is what we would call differences of interpretation that are really Christian distinctives. Because if you don't hold to these matters of interpretation, you aren't a Christian, not in the biblical sense of the term. You aren't actually a true believer. And what would some of those things be? Deity of Christ gospel, the resurrection, sin. All right, okay, number of things. But then there's another category. We could say uh, some differences of interpretation would be important. They are not, I'm drawing a distinction here between what's important and what's essential matters of interpretive differences. And these would be ecclesial distinctives. In fact, let me, let me mention this too about essential differences. When we ask why do so many different interpretations exist, I believe the Bible is plain, Jesus for one is plain, that when it comes to essential matters of interpreting the Bible differently, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That is, people will miss the essential doctrines of Scripture. They will miss what the Bible is saying essentially 
because of their own heart. They don't want to see it. They don't want to see the deity of Jesus Christ. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want to see their sin. They don't want to acknowledge the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is, that is what Jesus is talking about in John 3, uh, 19 through 21. The light is plain. Light is coming to the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So if we're talking about essential differences and why they exist, well, look no further than the human heart. That's what our Lord told us. But now there are important differences that we would say are not essential. And what I mean by that is uh, people will still enter the kingdom of God. They will still be your brother and sister in Jesus Christ, even if you won't have them that way. And that's, I think a lot of that's unfortunate. But these are important differences. And so that's why I'm calling them ecclesial distinctives. Ecclesial comes with this idea of the church, right? It has to do with the church. These would be matters of interpretive differences that would warrant us separating or go, going to another church, okay? And so some of these would be our view on tongues, okay, and spiritual gifts. I am not going to go to a church that is uh, taking worship and, and doing something with it that the Bible clearly does not prescribe. And, and what I see in Scripture is plainly dishonoring to the Spirit of God in the name of the Spirit of God. And so... Um, that would be an ecclesial distinctive. Now, that having said that, I have brothers and sisters that I know that are friends of mine that are Pentecostal, go to Assemblies of God Church, they're more charismatic. But this is an important distinction. <laughs> I wouldn't go to the same, I wouldn't go to their church. So I met with a brother uh, just, just this past week who we have some important differences. We wouldn't work in the same church, but I certainly include him as a, a Christian brother because of the essential agreements we have on matters of interpretation. Now, the other circle here, within the circle, within the circle, is non-essential differences of interpretation. And these would be personal distinctives now. So you see how the circle is getting tighter and tighter, right? It's getting smaller and smaller. And now here we're talking about things not like their view of tongues or their view of, you know, women pastors, or I don't know. I mean, there's, again, there's going to be some flex within what belongs between these important versus non-essential categories. But non-essential differences of interpretation would be things that Scripture does not speak directly to, like how we're to dress, the kind of style of music that we should use, or even things perhaps like your view of the rapture, which I think is pretty plain. And if you went through that course in our uh, study, I think it's plain, I, so I have a conviction on it. But you know what? I'm going to admit it's not as plain as other things in Scripture, and I'm going to admit it's not as important as other things in Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. All doctrine is important, but not all doctrine is of equal consequence because God is not going to condemn someone to eternal judgment because they had a different view of you than the rapture. Wow, I think we better hold that. Some people would put under essential, like essential distinctives, your version of the Bible that you use. How ridiculous. But you see, because people don't understand how to triage through matters of interpretation, they, they have a very like, cult-like approach to the Bible. It's very controlling. If you don't believe everything I do, if you don't dot your I's and cross your T's like I do, then I'm not going to extend to you the right hand of fellowship. I'm not even going to consider you a brother or sister. That's very sad. Um, I think that completely goes against the tenor of the gospel and the New Testament, the unity we have in Jesus Christ. But why do so many different interpretations exist? Well, on an essential level, again, it has to do with the heart of man. 
Man is sinful. Man does not want to submit to Jesus Christ. And there are things that man will refuse to see. But beyond that, we could say, for a lot of these non-essential or important distinctives between churches, they have to do with a lot of different factors. Let me give you some of those. Some of it would be our culture, shapes, how we view the text, and East and West will differ on how to interpret passages regarding women. And uh, even the literal, the nature of eternal fire. You know, in the East, a lot of people, they don't have a problem with that, just being fire, you know. Um, so I'm talking about, like, Middle East culture, you know. Oh, it's clear. But in the West, yeah, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather take a more figurative view on that. Or the view of women. I mean, now we have a very... Um, this egalitarian view of, of man and woman having, in, they have to have interchangeable roles in the church and in the family to be equals. This is kind of a phenomenon in the West, if you weren't aware. So definitely our culture does affect our, our interpretation and our community does then. This would have to do with our church, namely, in which we preach and teach and our denomination to which we belong. You know, there are different views of communion. <laughs> there are different views even of of like how to do communion, like close communion versus closed communion. Some of you might be aware of some of the things I'm talking about. But different views on baptism, I think that's important. But I'm not going to say that's essential, okay? Um, Now, I think we recognize if we say that baptism is your salvation, like as in this guy didn't get baptized, and so therefore he didn't go to heaven, and this guy got baptized, and now he's going to heaven, that, that kind of view of baptismal regeneration, I think is a, an essential problem. But mode of baptism, things like that, are certainly not the gospel itself. Our view of education would also affect our views of our differences of interpretation. Uh, that's why we're doing this course, because <laughs> we want to get better at understanding how to interpret the Bible. And if we don't know how to do that, guess what? We're going to come up with some differences of interpretation. Yeah, it might not be the best idea just to get on YouTube and hear what other people are saying. We want to be able to understand the Bible for ourselves. And our diligence, that would be another one, our paradigm, uh, our diligence or lack thereof, I should say, our, our general paradigm. Uh, you know, even when we talk about eschatology, for instance, we, we were bringing this up at the beginning that there are different paradigms for how we view this eschatological schema, the, the, the end times doctrines of scripture and if you come to the bible like many did with a covenant theology view you're going to interpret or filter all the passages you're reading through that grid and dispensationalists they did this thing too where they would just start i mean they just have a tendency of dividing everything up and everything is kingdom of god is not the kingdom of heaven and all this stuff and you're like whoa you know nobody can just read the bible for themselves but but these are paradigms that affect our interpretation of scripture and it is one reason why we have so many differences of interpretation that are not even essential they're over non-essential matters maybe over important matters but they exist our sinfulness of course affects this as well you know it's interesting when you counsel people sometimes you can show somebody a scripture it's so plain (laughs) it's so plain um Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know, honor your father and mother. Are you honoring your parents in this decision? Are you really honoring them? Of course I am honoring them. People will take the scriptures and they will twist them to make them say what they want to say to fit their selfish lifestyle. This is another reason that these differences exist. There are plenty of people that don't want to be under a pastor. 
they don't, guess what? They don't want to submit to pastoral authority. I've come across many people that left a church because they didn't like the, some of the, the personality of the pastor. Well, you can go ahead and go to another church, right? But to say the whole doctrine of submitting to a pastor is unbiblical, what is that? Now your, your personal sinfulness, really, these personal issues you have are affecting your interpretation of Scripture. You're creating your own grid through which to filter the Bible. Don't do that. I would add this, too. When it comes to some of these, these again, lesser essential interpretive differences, there is also what we might call intentional ambiguity. That is, the doctrine of perspicuity or the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture means that Scripture is clear enough. Scripture is essentially clear. Scripture is not equally clear on everything. And Second, second Peter 3, 16, Peter talks about those who are taking things that Paul has written, they're twisting them to their own destruction, and he says, things that are hard to be understood. Well, we, we grant that. There are some things in the Bible harder to understand. So here's a good question for you. Why on earth would God intentionally leave some things less clear than other things? Wouldn't you like some text in the Bible that just explicitly spoke to a particular issue? Sure you would. But let me leave you with some thoughts here. First of all, the idea that God is, or the fact that God has left a text ambiguous, intentionally less clear, I should say, reveals God's glorious right to conceal what he wishes, Proverbs 22, 5. It's God's right to conceal what he does. And it humbles us to remember that we know so little of our God and his eternal mysteries. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. God didn't make any mistakes when he wrote his word. He's saying, I would like this to be more plain. Well, it's as plain as God wanted it. Now, it may not be plain to you because you're not applying the other three rules of hermeneutics or other three general principles that we're going to examine. The contextual, grammatical, theological principles and all the specific principles applying to a specific genre. It may just be that. But there are things in Scripture that I would certainly like to be more clear. But I can tell you, God isn't to be faulted for not making them as clear as I want or you want. God makes no mistakes. He knows what he's doing. And we see in the New Testament that Jesus spoke in parables intentionally to conceal truth to those whose hearts were hardened while making truth available to those who truly desired to understand it. Interesting. Truth is as clear as God wants it to be. Pascal summarized this paradox between clarity and obscurity this way. There is sufficient clearness to enlighten the elect and sufficient obscurity to humble them. There is sufficient obscurity to blind the reprobate and sufficient clearness to condemn them and make them inexcusable. Wow. Well, some of that smacks on. I'm thinking of several different scriptures. Romans 1, for instance. Another reason that God has left some things in scripture less clear intentionally is that this compels us to search more carefully and diligently for the proper meaning of scripture it's god's incentive to you get in the book get to work (laughs) you got to get busy you got to get digging in scripture and be faithful to rightly divide the word of truth it encourages then our meditation upon scripture for clear understanding it rewards those who seek uh, faithfully to understand what is unclear by granting us the satisfaction of discovery and there's nothing like that when you come across a text you're like wow I know what it means, and I can prove it from the text. It's a very rewarding thing. 
It prevents us, that is God's action of, of allowing some things in Scripture to be less clear than others, prevents us from handling the Scripture after an impersonal manner. Now, you have to get in the book. This is personal. This isn't a systematic uh, textbook. This is a, a history. It's a love letter. It's a story. You have to interact with the book. Just read Psalm 119. That's the kind of relationship you need with this book if you're going to understand it. You need to love it. It needs to be your meditation all the day. God, by giving us less clear uh, texts in Scripture, provides us with the opportunity to test our love toward brothers and sisters with whom we disagree. That is over matters that are non-essential, personal distinctives, and even ecclesial distinctives. God is allowing you to interact with somebody you disagree with in a loving, selfless way. And I could say, I had some sweet fellowship with a brother who goes to a church that they do some things I wouldn't feel comfortable doing here. I wouldn't go to his church. He, I don't know that he would feel comfortable coming to mine. But we would have ecclesial distinctives on some level, important interpretive differences, and yet we could sit, have coffee, and praise the Lord for what he's doing in one another's lives and pray for one another's ministries. That's, that's the point. And we have that opportunity to test our love because we don't have a pope telling us how to dot our I's and cross our T's. The word of God is as clear as God wants it. And this shows us then, the fact that God has allowed some scriptures to be less plain to us, shows us our need to rely on pastors, on leaders in the church, on men whom, don't, don't miss it, God has gifted and given to the church. That's the whole point of Ephesians 4. God has gifted to the church, gifted men to equip the church in understanding the word of God. My job is to equip you to understand it for yourself. But it would be God's design. It is God's design, and it will be until Jesus comes back, to gift the church people that have a gift of the pastor. That's right. Don't let anybody tell you that a pastor is just somebody who understands the Bible or somebody who's got a love for people or anything like that. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. It's a calling. We all have spiritual gifts. This is God's design. So we can see several reasons, several factors involved with why God has allowed some scriptures to be less plain than others. But I do like Augustine's maxim in all of this. Augustine offers some wisdom in how to handle differences of interpretation. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. So I trust we'll take that to mind. Now what do we do when we come to the literal principle, and the literal principle is read the Bible for what it plainly says, respect the Bible's literature, let the text speak for itself. What about when we, we come to a text, though, we're not certain what it plainly means? What are we going to do? We're going to apply the other three general principles of hermeneutics. None of, none of what I'm saying in any one of these principles of hermeneutics can be divorced from the other. They all go with each other. And so what do we do when the meaning's not clear? Well, that brings us to the contextual principle of hermeneutics. This is a general principle of hermeneutics because it applies to every genre of scripture. It doesn't matter whether you're reading poetry or you're reading prophecy or it's a narrative or an epistle. 
you must respect the context of Scripture. We must discover the context of whatever it is we are reading. And this is because we want to honor the authorial intent of the original author. Now, while we recognize that meaning is defined by the author, sometimes an author's intended meaning can be somewhat elusive. You know what I mean? Sometimes what the author intends you to understand might not be immediately plain to you. And uh, let me give you an example. (laughs) The British mathematician and logician Lewis Carroll wrote Through the Looking Glass, in which he, he has a lot of fun with language and logic as a logician. And he, let me just give you this dialogue that Alice is having in this story that Carroll wrote. Alice, this young girl, is having a discussion with Humpty Dumpty. And so, yeah, this is fiction. You know, this great egg-like guy is sitting on the wall. She's having a discussion with him about the meaning of words. And he says to her in the discussion, there's glory for you. And Alice replies, I don't know what you mean by glory. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, until I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use the word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That's all. Now, if you're following this uh, illustration from Lewis Carroll, if if you're thinking about our whole discussion on authorial intent, you see some of the tension here. Because we said in previous weeks that meaning must be defined by the author who spoke those words, who wrote those words. And from this, this illustration, then, I want to give you two important takeaways to think about here. First of all, words may have multiple meanings. Isn't that true? Words may have multiple meanings, and their meanings are ultimately subservient to the one who speaks them. That's the idea of authorial intent again. Secondly, though, we see illustrated in this story, while we are the ones who craft our words and ascribe them a meaning, we can't ourselves escape the conventional use of language. You could go around telling people things and say, well, this is what I meant. But I'll tell you what, uh, that's, only, that's not going to work so good in the court of law. You could say you meant yes when you said no. <laughs> the court's going to judge you by what you said and by the conventional use of that language. See, But that wasn't my authorial intent. You see what I'm saying? Which is to be master? Which is to be master? That's the question, right? Well, here's, here's why I bring this illustration to you. I want to encourage you this morning. The scriptures are not a, a silly word game. It's not a dark riddle in the Bible that you just got to figure out. Maybe God is using this word in some way that, that you know, he only knows and he never intended anybody else to know. You know? No. Um, God's words, the words he has chosen, are interwoven in such a way that we can discover the meaning of any single word, phrase, and or sentence, or paragraph in the light of the context. And this begs the question, what, what is context? You've heard this word before. We've used it, right? Well, and by the way, this is one of the ways that we can attempt to get at the meaning of a word is by breaking it down to its constituent parts. The word context is a, a compound word, has two compound roots. Con, meaning together, 
and texere, in, in Latin, these are Latin roots, to weave. And of course, you've used the word, you know the word text, right? That is something which is woven together. That's the origin of that word. So context is, even from its etymology, its source we see is a word or phrase that um, we, it weaves together the author's original sense. I should say the context of a word or phrase is what weaves together the author's sense. And when we come to the Bible, I'm excited to tell you that it is interwoven marvelously. The same God who chose each word of Scripture also chose each phrase and paragraph. Uh, every, this whole library of Scripture, it is intricately woven together by the design of God. But now there are two basic dimensions to context. And don't worry, I'm throwing a lot of this at you, but this is sort of the introduction to this contextual principle. And Lord willing, we'll spend two more weeks looking at it. But there's two dimensions, basic dimensions to context. One we might call the grammatical context. That is, we are looking at what comes immediately before the word, what comes immediately after. We're we're interested in the grammar. And one of our principles of hermeneutics here general principles is this grammatical principle. So hang on to your seats. Uh, some of you have already uh, complained to me about some of this is a little technical. Well, guess what? It, it's going to be technical because when you want to understand words and you want to understand literature, there's a technicality to it. And so when we come to church, I'm asking you to maybe put aside the, um, the ex- I don't want to ref- say this in a negative way, but I don't know how else to say it. Sometimes we have low expectations for what we're expecting at, to get at church. And we just expect to be told a story, entertained. And sometimes our leaders, and I think biblically, tell us, you need to think. You need to get working. This is going to require some education. And we, we think school and church, well, this is Sunday school, so I'm not, I'm not saying more there. So the grammatical context or literary context has to do with the context of the literature itself. Then we could say, though, the historical context is, is a whole other dimension here. And now they do overlap. These are not unrelated, and so we're going to study them together, right? But the historical context would have to do with uh, knowing a lot of details, background details and things like that. Um, in fact, let me, let me put some, just to illustrate this at the outset, give you a graph here. Here's some levels of the grammatical or literary context, all right? We start with a word. Well, that's newsflash for you. <laughs> you. You can jump into the Bible, and you can put your finger down, and you will be fingering a word, but that word is surrounded in a phrase. Maybe it's just an interjection, but even if it's an interjection, it's surrounded by a phrase, uh, other phrases, and then, of course, there are sentences that make, uh, the phrases uh, make up, and sentences really are what um, make up then paragraphs. So if we want to understand a sentence, we got to understand the paragraph that it's found in, and then If we want to understand the paragraph, many times we have to understand the context of the book that the paragraph is found in. And then, of course, yes, even the canon. The fact that every book, every one of the 66 books of the Bible is in a greater canonical uh, library. So these are levels of context. And when I talk about understanding something in context, reading the scripture in context, discovering the context, do not think that this only applies to one of those levels because it's applying to all. And that's what happens. It's a lot of time people forget that and uh, you can come up with all kinds of strange ideas again from the Bible because you're ignoring the authorial intent because you are not paying attention to the context in which the author is writing to us. 
So when we are comparing literary and historical context, then you might think of it this way, just not to oversimplify it, but we have a grammatical context. That's the literature itself. We're studying what comes before and after the word we're trying to discover. And then we also want to keep in mind there's this other dimension of historical context where we're looking for historical information within the text that might shed more information on how this author is using this expression, this word, uh, why he's making this claim, why, he's, why this is happening, this event. Why did God tell these people to do this? Well, is there any ex- historical information within the text that would clue you in on that? And then, of course, along with that is this historical information without the text, which is what we would call background information. And by that, you could mean maybe I need to go from 1 Samuel into 1 Kings. Maybe it's something like that. It's outside of my immediate text, and yet um, it would still be in the Bible. But there could be historical information that helps you understand the Bible better that is even outside the Bible. Having said, there is nothing like that. You'll never be in a situation where you have to have some kind of a archaeological handbook or something and if you don't have that, that companion, that, that extra biblical guide to the scriptures, you're somehow going to miss the essential meaning of scripture. It's not what I'm saying. But because the Bible is history, you better bet it intersects with history. And if you want to appreciate it better, there will be times where background information can surely be helpful. All right. So, moving on. Why observe the contextual principle? Why should we observe the contextual principle? Well... Let me give you several reasons. I think they are in our outline there. First of all, it recognizes the harmony of the Bible. Why must every interpreter of the Bible discover the context of what he is reading? Because to do so recognizes the harmony of Scripture. If there were no coherence to the biblical text, then paying attention to context would be meaningless. If the Bible was just a hodgepodge collection of sayings, you wouldn't have to pay attention to the, maybe the previous paragraph or sentence or something like that. But the Bible isn't written like that. The Bible's not a scrapbook of unrelated statements and thoughts. There's a coherent theme running throughout it. And by the way, I think from my interaction with people of many different religions, I believe this is one of the reasons why people have a hard time understanding the Bible in its context, because their religious texts don't read like that. And if you've ever read any of the Upanishads, or any of the sutras, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's like you're not always required to really understand the context. You're not even supposed to. You can just jump in and read this psalm, this poem, and, and even in the, the Quran itself, which ironically is one book, there's not a lot of coherence there. But when people come to the Bible, they think they can just read it like they read their scriptures, and you know what? You can't. Because the Bible is not a hodgepodge collection of sayings. It might be 66 different books, But if you read and study the Bible in context, you realize there's a history here. There's a progression. It is a progress of revelation. And once you have the key, which is Jesus Christ, it fits the lock, you see. And it works. And it, it, of course, illumines to us the significance of what it is we're reading. But all in context. All in context. So the Bible gives us a coherent, unified message. And that is why this contextual principle is necessary. It recognizes the harmony of scripture. A second reason why we must apply the contextual principle in our interpretation is that it is the primary means for discovering an author's meaning. I actually think in your outline it says it is the primary way to discover an author's meaning. 
Same difference. <laughs> the only way to genuinely understand the author's meaning for what he said is to understand the context in which he said it. We say this uh, in hermeneutics that a text without a context is a pretext. A text without a context is a pretext. You cannot rely on the meaning of a text when you do not understand its context. And people who do are very pretextuous many times. This is what cults do. We call it proof texting. It's one of the fallacies where they just remember I mentioned to you, even, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 8, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society prints their material from supposedly their elite people that have direct illumination from God. And guess what? Their God forgot to honor the context of Proverbs 8 <laughs> and is totally misreading that text. Surprise. So a text without a context is a pretext. And we've run into these situations all the time where someone's taken out of context. Maybe you're familiar with the, the statement, of course you are, separation of church and state. We hear that, right? Now, that's actually not in the Constitution, you know? But today, people say, well, you know what that means is that we shouldn't have any Christian influence in the government. You can't legislate morality, is what, is what they want to say. Really, is that where that what that statement means. That, this was spoken, by the way, by Thomas Jefferson, and the context of that statement is found in a letter he wrote to Baptists, Christian Baptists, living in Danbury, Connecticut. And the, the context is that Jefferson writes, believing with you that religion is a matter that lies solely between man and his God, and that he owes account to none other for his faith and worship other than to God, that the legitimate powers of the government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people, which declare that their legislature should make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. You see, Jefferson was saying, I agree with you, Baptists, that religion is a personal matter and that government should not enforce any religion. But he wasn't saying that government should have nothing to do with religion, or rather, religion should have nothing to do with government. That would be absurd. Because then, on what basis is government legislating anything, if not on a moral one? And how do you have morals without values? And how do you have values without a worldview, without some religious view? Of course, I'm just saying this. People use the statements. Other people make the statements the biblical writers will make for their own intent. And they are dishonoring the authorial intent. And how do we know they're doing that? Context. Context is king. A text without a context is a pretext. Context brings the writer's meaning into focus. You could use a lens analogy of a camera. A good photo requires a good focus. And a camera will use the background. It uses all the information surrounding the focused image to, to focus and give you a crisp focus on the image you're targeting at. That, that's what we have to do with context. We come to the Bible and we have to use the background to bring into focus what it is we're examining. Now, we say context, it recognizes, the contextual principle recognizes the harmony of the Bible. It is the primary means for discovering the author's intent. And thirdly, it enriches our understanding of the text. It enriches our understanding of the text. I can give you lots of examples of this, but the, uh, the book of Ruth is one example that people miss. They think, oh, it's a nice love story. Why is it in the Bible? 
Oh, it's a love story, right? No, not quite. I mean, it's a great love story, sure. But the story of Ruth is there because ultimately this woman, Ruth, if you read in the, in the story and in context, she's a Moabitess. She's an enemy of God. She's outside the covenant of God. And yet she is graciously allowed to enter into God's covenant through this marriage with this kinsman redeemer. And you would want to know what that is and, and what that was all a picture of and what was so significant about that. But I'm just saying this. Ruth is a love story, but it's much more than that. It's a prefigurement of how Christ will redeem his unlikely and unlovable bride. And it's also a setup for 1 Samuel where we we are introduced to the story of David, who's going to continue the line of Messiah, and then we're going to get the, the whole Davidic covenant. I'm just telling you. You can't take the Bible out of context. It's all, um, if you do so, you can do that, but you're dishonoring the Bible. You're dishonoring the authorial intent. And when you understand the context and you apply this principle, I'll tell you what, it will enrich your understanding of the Word. You'll come away from stories, you'll come away from your time in the Word of God saying, wow, this is exciting. Seeing things you've never seen before, and I'm not talking about it hit my mind, I'm talking about it hit me off the book. All right? There's a difference. So, Context is important, and every Bible interpreter should live by uh, this rule. When it comes to interpretation, context is king. Context is king. And so I want to show you the priority of context and begin with the last remaining time I have by emphasizing the priority of context in doing word studies, studying words in context, because that's where we basically begin, right? Uh, I know we, we could begin with letters. <laughs> letters have a context too, right? They make up words. But um, we're not doing that. So we, we start with words. And let me see here, for sake of time. There's two basic approaches. And this is in your outline, I believe, to exploring a word's meaning. The first is exploring a word's origin. And that is the study of etymology. You study where the word came from. Now, there's two ways to do this. One would be that you examine a word's development over time. Well, yesterday, some of us guys were out at a driving range, and for some of us, it was the first time. And Brother Efren, who was giving us a lot of good tips along with Brother John, mentioned we, you only have one chance, basically, to, to drive that ball. That's it. You get that, that single shot at the beginning. That's it, unless you're a mulligan, he said. Now, this is a term that is used in golf. It's a common expression, and sometimes it appears in sports or in politics. But, um, you know, it's not so frequently used. And I said, where does that expression come from? And he, didn't, he wasn't certain, though he had an idea. And I, w- I looked it up because I was curious, too. And it turns out nobody is quite certain. But as you might suspect, and as her brother was telling me, you know, it most likely had to do with somebody who demanded a second shot. Because a mulligan is a do-over. It's somebody who wants a second chance, right? And so we use that expression, and if somebody calls you a mulligan, you're thinking, what kind of, how should I take that? Is this a compliment? Is this a, well, I don't know that it's a compliment. probably isn't a compliment, but we would know the meaning of that word by studying its etymology, because we're studying its development over time. Now, we could do that with different biblical examples. What would be a word, maybe, that, that you could derive its meaning from its development? Anything? Uh, let's see, for sake of time, I guess I don't have anything striking me. I did explain to somebody this week, when you, when you 
read the Lamb of God. John says, the Lamb, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it's interesting, and this is more of a historical context thing too, I guess. But I always have to bring that person back to why Jesus is called a lamb. It goes through this whole history of the development of sacrifice and all this and what Jesus had to do with it. I, okay, just understand, sometimes we can study a word in light of its development over time. That's one way of exploring a word's origin, and that can be helpful. It can be. Um, another thing we could do, another way we might attempt to discern a word's meaning in light of its origin, would be to examine a word's components. That is to break down the word in terms of its constituent parts, like what I was doing with the word context a moment ago. Here's a word for you from 2 Timothy 3.16. Theopneustos. This is a, a Greek compound word that is made up of the words theos, God, and nuo. It means breathed out. And here's why, here's why approaching this particular word in terms of its components, in terms of its origin, is significant. Because you won't find it anywhere else prior to 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, scholars believe this is in all likelihood a word that Paul himself coined to describe God literally breathing out the scriptures. All right, And that's, that's obviously a significant word. So I'm just saying sometimes... We can explore a word's origin in light of its development over time, uh, trying to get back to maybe the time it was first used. We call this the law of first meaning. And I, could, I guess I could give examples of that, but for sake of time, I won't. And then also we can try to get at the word's meaning from its origin by studying its components. We can ask, does it have a prefix? What's the root, the morpheme of the word? Does it, is it a compound word? Does it have a suffix? And if you've taken Greek or maybe learned another language, you're, you maybe think a little bit more like this. I remember uh, I took some Latin, and, and it helped me a lot reading Shakespeare because I could break down the words in terms of their Latin roots and realize Shakespeare coined a lot of our terms. And you wouldn't know what they meant because people didn't use them, didn't use those words. And a lot of those words we haven't used since. A lot of them we do. But you can derive the meaning of what he's saying well, of course, in context, I would say that's the best thing. But even knowing Latin, it was interesting just to uh, be able to derive what he meant. Now, studying words in context, there's two basic approaches we're saying you can use to discern a word's meaning. The first is to explore a word's origin. The second, and most helpful, is to explore a word's usage. We're not talking about etymology now. We're talking about context. Context is king. This is the most important thing. Many times people will be misled because they're trying to understand a word in terms of its origin. And what would be the, what would be the, the shortcoming of that, potentially? What would be the limitation of defining a word by its development in time? Well, we're, yes, words change. I just mentioned Shakespeare a moment ago. Go and pick up a copy of Hamlet and read it. And you know what you'll discover? The English language has remarkably changed. And there will be words, you're like, what does this mean? And some of those words, you might assume you know what it means, and, and you don't, because you have a time gap now, you have a culture gap, all those different things we mentioned at the outset of this course. So there is a limitation to defining a word in terms of its origin, because meaning changes over time. Uh, that, that is not, get me, don't get me wrong, the Bible's meaning hasn't changed over time. 
because the meaning itself is grounded. The meaning of any text, I should be clear here, is grounded in the authorial intent, which does not change. Shakespeare still means what Shakespeare meant. Okay? Now, we might not know, though, what Shakespeare means. We might not know what the Bible means because we now use those words differently, which is why updated versions of the Bible are valid and a good idea. Uh, so, meaning changes over time. There's also another limitation of defining a word by its constituent parts, its components. And I could give you many examples of this, but we call this the etymological fallacy or root fallacy when someone goes to the Bible, they try to break down the word in light of its constituent parts, and they come up with something that it does not, the word does not mean. So, let me give you an example. Metaneo. It's the Greek word for repentance, right? To repent. You'll hear this, and there's some validity to this. Okay, the, the word meta, it's a Greek preposition, which is like after, and uh, noeo is to think, it's my, having to do with the mind, so it's a change of mind. You're thinking something differently. And um, so I have read material, I heard people say things like, that's what it is. It's a change of mind, it does not require necessarily a change in behavior to be true repentance. And they will base that argument off of the constituent parts of the Greek word for repentance, to repent. Good idea or bad idea? (laughs) Bad idea. Bad idea. Because even though there is some truth to that, repentance certainly does have to do with a change of mind. If you study the words usage in different contexts of the Bible, you will realize that it's certainly a change of mind that must result in a change of behavior, right? Bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. Repentance must mean a change in behavior. So I, I think we could, I could give several examples of words that are important. Uh, it's important to understand their, their meaning um, in context. Even like a word like repentance, people say, well, I, I'm repentant. I know what that means. It means that I feel sorry for what I've done. And that's remorse, but that's not repentance. And how are we going to know the difference between remorse and repentance? How are we going to know repentance doesn't just mean remorse? It's not just a synonym context. Usage. Look at the usage of a word. And what I'm going to do, if I saw a question there. I'm just going to conclude here. And then if you have questions, feel free to pelt me uh, today or through the week. Um, and I did not get through everything I wanted to. I'm, getting, I'm starting to get a little discouraged because I am going a little fast, I feel, already. But it's okay. We'll, we'll get enough. And what we're going to do when we come back next week is jump into studying words in context, and we're going to look at some examples of how to do that. Let me close this in prayer.